millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Monday the 16th of August 1926, 7 o'clock in the morning, and a crowd is gathering outside Perth's Supreme Court. These men and women, happy and laughing, as though they're at the opening night of a light comic opera, are queuing in the hope of getting a seat in the public gallery for the premiere of what promises to be the most sensational show in town. The trial of Philip Trephine and William Coulter for the murder of Detective Inspector John Walsh, 17 miles south of Boulder, in the Goldfields, on the 28th of April. Though these two are only officially facing this charge, they're also by extension on trial for the murder of Walsh's partner, Detective Sergeant Alexander Pittman, whose remains have not been positively identified. These murders, and the sickening way the bodies were dismembered, burned and dropped into an old mine shaft, have electrified the city, the state and the whole country. If Trophine and Coulter are found guilty, they'll be sentenced to death, and they'll almost certainly hang. What stands between them and the gallows is Arthur Haynes, the brilliant barrister who last year pulled off a legal victory for the ages when, seemingly against all odds, he got accused murderer Audrey Jacob acquitted. To win this case, Haynes has to do two things. First, demolish the story of Teddy Clark, Trophine and Coulter's alleged accomplice, on whose story the Crown's case substantially depends, and whose charge for being an accomplice is supposedly going to be tried at a later date. Second, Haynes has to convince the jury of what really happened to Detectives Walsh and Pittman, and to do this, he's going to let the jury hear it direct from the mouths of Trophine and Coulter. The accused men taking the stand, that's going to be a showstopper. I'm Michael Adams and this is part four of the five-part Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. Just after 10 in the morning, Trophine and Coulter were led up from the vaults beneath the courtroom by two policemen and they took their seats in the dock. Fifteen feet away sat Justice Thomas Draper in his red robe with its fawn trimmings. Hubert Parker would again prosecute for the Crown, and this was to be his last case before he retired into private practice. In this trial, he'd call some 30 witnesses. Most had been at the inquest, and they'd give the same testimony. But when Teddy Clark testified, again telling how he'd been involved in the illicit gold trade with the accused and how they'd come to him on the afternoon of the 28th and said they'd shot the detectives, he added a vivid new detail to his story. Clark said Trophine had told him, quote, When I took the gun to shoot Pittman, he cried, For God's sake, don't shoot Phil. But I said, You bastard, you broke my home up, now I've got you, and I fired. Of course, this callous, cold-blooded detail produced a sensation in the court, and gasps rose from the gallery. 
Of course, you also had to wonder why Clark hadn't included it previously. Had he been making up his story out of whole cloth all along and was now embroidering it further for the trial? Clark's other testimony again claimed he'd gone out to the plant site and mine with Coulter, but it had been Coulter who'd done all the grisly body disposal work while Clark had stayed in the car. Arthur Haynes was now set to rip into him. When he began his cross-examination, it was with what Truth called a bark. Haynes asked, You're not an Australian, are you? Clark said he was not. He'd been born in England. Haynes said, quote, That's a relief anyway. You're waiting, waiting, waiting for your trial as an accessory, aren't you? Do you think it'll ever come off? Clark replied, It won't come off. Haynes jeered, I should think it wouldn't. The judge cautioned Haynes not to make already unpleasant proceedings worse with such antagonistic antics. But Haynes had scored his point. He wanted the jury to understand from the outset his contention that Clark was lying in trying to trade away his clients' lives to save his own. Haynes' strategy was to lay bare every lie that Clark had told in his police statements and at the inquest. Clark had said that the Overland 6 motor car didn't belong to him but to his wife. Haynes said, quote, Wasn't it because you were afraid of its being confiscated if stolen gold were ever found in it? Clark responded, Yes, I think that was the idea. Clark had also said that he started in the gold trafficking business a few weeks after taking over the Duke of Cornwall Hotel. Haynes said, Wasn't it true that it had been earlier than that? Clark said, Yes, three months earlier. Haynes asked why Coulter, who got his profit from selling the treated gold, also took an additional risk by going out to process it. Clark claimed it was for Coulter's convenience. Haynes mocked, his own convenience, taking risks for which he got nothing? Clark then tried to claim that Coulter had been going out there because he was also treating ore that he bought independently. Yet Haynes reminded him he'd been asked that question at the inquest and he'd said that Coulter did not do that. Haynes had the court laughing as he ran rings around Clark. Wasn't it strange that everything at the plant had come from Clark's hotel? He asked Clark if anything at the plant had been Coulter's. Clark didn't reply. How about those dainty little tins of chicken and crab and asparagus that had been found at the plant? Did his rough old barman Trophine really love such delicacies? Clark the Dandy, who the court had already heard was a fan of such food, tried to claim they'd simply been handy when his wife had made up the hampers for Trophine and Coulter. Haynes said pish posh. It had really been Clark and Trophine who'd gone out to the plant once a month or more. And he, not Coulter, had been there with Trophine on the 28th of April. Clark denied it. Haynes mocked the idea that Coulter and Trophine would have together committed cold-blooded murder and then come to the Duke of Cornwall Hotel to confess to Clark. Why should they do that, he shouted. Clark replied, we were all partners. Haynes came back with, but what profit is there in a murder? Clark remained mute. When he did speak, it was to now claim he'd lied in his first statement because he thought if he told the truth, then Coulter and Trophine might have shot him. Haynes asked, how would they have done that? Surely, if Clark had said something to the police, they would have been arrested immediately. Clark said, well, maybe they would have still been at large. Haynes asked, how would they have known that he'd talked? Clark said, because he might tell them, which of course made no sense at all. Haynes went on the attack, quote, Did you not ask Coulter to come out with you and clean up the mess? Clark replied, A pack of lies. But Clark's own falsehoods kept being proved. Clark admitted what had been entirely obvious at the inquest, that he'd been lying when he said he didn't know why Coulter had wanted the knife and the saw. Clark twisted himself in knots, claiming, quote, I did know, and I didn't. I'd not been told. Haynes went for him. Is not that a deliberate lie? Clark dug himself in deeper by replying it was, quote, not altogether a lie. Why, Haynes wanted to know, did Clark, if his story was true, allow his nice new car to be the, quote, corpse carrier when Coulter had his own vehicle? Clark replied, I never thought of it. Haynes said it had been Clark who directed Coulter to the shaft. Clark said it wasn't true. It had been Coulter who decided on the dump spot. He said he'd chosen it because it was close to where the Egan brothers were known to have a plant, so any suspicion would fall on them. Yet by claiming this, Clark was presupposing that the bodies would be found, 
which made about as much sense as many of his other claims. Continuing to construct his alternate story, Haynes said Clark had worn Trafine's trousers so he wouldn't get blood on his own nice clobber. He'd also worn the man's sand shoes so he wouldn't leave tracks. Haynes claimed that Clark had told Trafine that, after dumping the bodies, he'd forgotten to get rid of Pittman's revolver and his handcuffs, and that he'd later disposed of these elsewhere. Haynes also claimed that Clark had been lying when he said he'd loaned Coulter his automatic pistol and never asked for it back. Clark held fast, denying, denying, denying. Haynes continued to attack him for lying, lying, lying. The cross-examination went into a second day. Haynes wanted to know this. If it had been Trafine who'd thrown his own double-seated trousers away, then what had he worn back to town? Certainly, it hadn't been Coulter who'd worn these trousers, had it? Clark replied, he couldn't say. Haynes went for him, quote, You can't say, can't you? Haven't you got eyes? Look at the two of them. The two men were built very differently. Trafine quite lean, Coulter a stouter figure. The cross-examination went into a third day. Clark stuck to the core of his story, but he looked like a liar. In fact, he admitted as much. When Haynes asked, quote, Wouldn't you tell a lie if it suited you? Clark replied, I wouldn't tell a lie if the truth will do. When Teddy's wife Florrie took to the box, Haynes subjected her to another marathon cross-examination. He showed that she'd made plenty of false claims in her police statements and at the inquest. When the police had come to the Duke of Cornwall Hotel to speak to Teddy and to search the place, she'd given a bag to one of Trafine's sons and told him to burn it. Mrs. Clark had repeatedly denied this. Now she admitted she'd lied. But she tried to claim in court that she'd told the kid to burn the bag for no real reason. Haynes, you had no reason at all. Mrs. Clark didn't speak. For once, neither did Haynes. She sat and her hands trembled. Haynes asked her again. Silence. He asked again. Mrs. Clark refused to answer, even when the judge ordered her to. She looked just as dodgy as her husband. As the trial entered its third week, Haynes opened the defence. He said the Crown case was weak, empty, trying to incriminate two men in the dock on the evidence of just one witness, Teddy Clark. Clark as the jury had heard and seen, was hopelessly tainted by his involvement and his subsequent self-serving lies. Haynes told the court that he wasn't going to name all the witnesses he intended to call. That was because he feared they'd get unwanted attention from the police. The police files do show that they were looking very closely at the witnesses. That was because they suspected that Haynes had been offering substantial bribes for perjury. Haynes reminded the jury that every witness for Coulter was also a witness for Trafine. And if the jury was wondering why much of what they were about to hear hadn't been at the inquest, it was because the coroner didn't have the power to declare a man not guilty if the Crown had made its prima facie case. Additionally, the inquest had been a farce that was designed to allow the Crown to tender inadmissible evidence. In other words, Haynes had been patient, keeping his powder dry until the trial where the truth could be revealed. Much of what Haynes said next in his opening address would be heard direct from Trafine and from Coulter. So, rather than repeat it, I'll save it for their accounts. Suffice to say, the summary Haynes provided was astounding. Truth newspaper reported, quote, There was a rustle and a murmur and a mutter of excitement when Mr. Haynes called the accused Trafine. The jury chairs scraped. Mr. Parker turned his head to watch the accused man walk from the dock to the box. From the gallery, heads craned over. Every eye was turned upon Trafine. Philip Trafine said he was a widower with five children and had been ordered off the mines 11 years ago, having contracted miner's disease. Since then, he'd been working as a barman and he'd known Clark about a dozen years, though he'd only worked for him after Clark took over the Duke of Cornwall Hotel. That was when Clark had asked him to go into illicit gold. Clark didn't pay him for his bar work. The only money he got was his share of the gold profits. The records of his wages, they were just so Clark could better cheat the tax man. 
Trafine admitted he had been convicted of illicit gold charges, but he said he'd had no animosity to Walsh or Pittman. He said that he and Clark were the only ones who'd ever been out to the plant. It was his job to buy and treat the ore. Clark always drove him out there. On two occasions, he'd taken his bike in the back seat and cycled back, but every other time, it had been Clark who'd come to pick him up. Trafine said that between 1.30 and 2 in the morning on the 28th of April, one of his sons had woken him up by saying, Ted's outside waiting. They'd never gone out two days in succession, like Clark and his wife had claimed. It was all done in one session. So Clark dropped him off and drove back to Kalgoorlie. The plan was for Clark to return at about 1.30 to 2pm. Now by himself at the gold plant in the bush, Trafine built the fire, put the ore on to roast, and then had a sleep. He woke up around 6 in the morning, and he went out and shot a rabbit. Trafine said he had breakfast, removed the ore, and then began the next part of the smelting process. A little after midday, he had his lunch, completed the gold treatment, and carried the hamper, rugs, and rabbit to the road, ready for where Clark would pick him up. Yet that wouldn't be for another half hour or so so Trafine decided to take another walk and try and shoot another rabbit. Rather than carry the gold around, he'd hide it. Trafine said he'd been walking, gold bar in his left hand, shotgun over his right shoulder, when detectives Walsh and Pittman had surprised him. Trafine had run. When he looked back, he saw Pittman trying to cut him off. Quote, I went to the left and had gone only a few yards when I stumbled, and in recovering myself, the gun accidentally went off. Trafine said he didn't know if the gold bar had knocked it or his finger had bumped the trigger. The shotgun, he said, had gone off accidentally before. Quote, I heard some groaning behind me and looked back and saw Pittman falling and Mr. Walsh staggering. Pittman was 10 to 15 yards back and Walsh a few yards behind him. Trafine dropped the gun and ran to Walsh. The detective inspector was on the ground, bleeding heavily from the neck. He told the court, he said, My God, Mr. Walsh, this is awful. The gun went off by accident. What can I do? Walsh said, Get me a drink of water. Trafine, All right, Mr. Walsh, but wait till I try to stop the blood. Walsh wasn't just bleeding from the neck, but also from the right side of his face. Trafine tied a handkerchief around Walsh's neck and tore the lining of his coat as an additional bandage. Trafine said he'd gone to Pittman. He wasn't moving. It was obvious he was dead. The left eye and the left side of his forehead had been destroyed by the blast. Trafine gave Walsh a cup of water and put bags under his head to try to make him comfortable. The detective said, quote, Thank you very much, Phil. Take me back to Kalgoorlie. Trafine said he would, just as soon as Clark came with the car. Walsh was still bleeding and he was getting weaker. Trafine ran to the plant to get an old shirt he was going to use as a bandage. But by the time he got back... Walsh had died. All up, it had been seven to eight minutes, ten at most. Trafine was in a panic. He didn't know what to do. But he did know that he had to leave everything just as it was because the police would want that. Clark had arrived at the pickup point shortly afterwards. He said, Hello, Phil. What are you doing here? Trafine had replied, My God, Ted, something terrible has happened. Trafine explained and then said, Quote, The best thing is to go back, tell the police, and bring them straight away. But Clark had said, Good God, you can't do that. You'll drag me into it, and besides, they won't believe it's an accident. They might charge us with having murdered them. But Trafine insisted they had to tell the police. Clark resisted. Think of me and my wife and child. Anyway, wait till we go down and see the bodies, and I'll consider what's the best thing to do. They drove past the plant to the spot where they usually turned the car around, and, given the wet, that was when they made the tyre tracks. Clark had asked Trafine about the gold. Trafine said he'd dropped it. He begged Clark not to touch anything, but Clark replied, Leave it to me, I'll fix everything. While Trafine had waited in the car, it had been Clark who'd gone to where the bodies had fallen. Clark returned 15 minutes later with one petrol tin of earth. Then he went back out and got the gun and the gold. Clark said he'd come back later to do more cleaning up and get rid of the bodies. As they were driving back to Kalgoorlie, Clark had wondered aloud whether Coulter might help him do this. Trafine had said, don't ask him. 
Trafine told the court that Clark had dropped him home at quarter past three, just as one of his sons, Jack, was going to the afternoon mining shift. Trafine told the court that Clark had acted alone to get rid of the bodies and those tins of earth. Clark had said to him, quote, Everything is cleaned up. They'll never be found. I've had a terrible job. I burnt their clothes and cut them up and tried to burn them, but it was a slow job. What I couldn't burn, I dumped down a shaft. I removed all traces of blood and took the roaster and several other things. I threw the pants down the shaft and the shoes away in the bush. Clark supposedly hadn't thrown the shoes down the shaft because he needed to wear them to cover his tracks back to the car. While Trafine was giving his testimony, Clark, in court, was laughing continually. Haynes told his client, Don't take any notice of him. He thinks he can afford to laugh. Trafine continued saying that in the days following the disposal of the body, Clark said he was going to blow in the mine shaft. But when he was nearly out there one afternoon, a car had passed him on the road, and he'd abandoned the plan after that, afraid to be seen close to the dump site again. Trafine said he'd begged him to leave it alone. On the 8th of May, Clark told Trafine he was going to pay a man £25 to burn his car so it couldn't be identified by the tyres but this fellow had cleared out for Perth before he'd done the job. Once the bodies were found, Trafine said, Clark had told him, quote, Now they've got to find out who did it. Trafine said he and Clark had talked about the terrible accident and the cover-up every day. Trafine said he hadn't said anything to the police out of loyalty and fear. And from the day of the death, he hadn't bought any more gold. Then, on the 5th of June, he had, but only because Clark was, quote, crying and saying he had to have money to pay off the hotel. Haynes' last question to the accused was, quote, Now, did you deliberately shoot either or both of those men? Trafine said, No, I could not have done it. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com There was a lot for Hubert Parker to cross-examine. Parker asked Trafine why he hadn't called his son Jack to testify at the inquest. Trafine said his son not testifying had been on Haynes's advice. Parker pressed. Jack had been at the inquest. He could have said something. For that matter, Trafine could have told the truth then. Parker asked, Well, why didn't he? Why didn't you? Trafine shouted, Because I was shielding Clark. I said nothing because I was shielding a mongrel like Clark. One by one, Parker confronted Trafine with all the lies he'd told in his statement. Every time Trafine had to answer that yes, he'd lied, he said it had only been to protect Clark. Parker asked, Why did you tell so many lies? Trafine cried, I wish to God I hadn't. If I had told the truth, I would not be here now. Parker asked when he and Coulter had first seen Haynes. Trafine said he couldn't remember, but whenever it had been, they'd told the truth straight away. So in other words, before the inquest which of course made it strange that Haynes had presented none of this remarkable story then. Parker returned again and again to the wounds inflicted on Walsh and Pittman. Two men dead, with one shot, fired backwards, accidentally, while running and falling. Parker quizzed Trafine on how far apart Walsh and Pittman had been when they were hit. He said he couldn't say for sure. Parker asked, why had he run with the gun? Wouldn't he have had a better chance of getting away if he'd dropped it? Trafine responded, I wish to God I had, but I never thought of it. Trafine claimed he hadn't known Clark had given a statement until the inquest. Fair enough, but Parker asked, You had plenty of time to tell this story since you knew what Clark had said, hadn't you? Trafine made another outburst. It's not a story, it's the truth. Parker didn't buy it. He said that Haynes and Trafine and Coulter had concocted this story after admissions and non-admissions at the inquest. Parker asked about those bar slips that showed that Trafine had worked at the pub until 6pm on the 28th of April. Trafine said they'd been forged, but it had been Clark's idea. 
Clark had supposedly scooped up more bloody earth at night out at the plant. Didn't it strike Trafine as strange that he'd been able to find it in the dark? Trafine said he hadn't considered it. The prosecutor also mused that it was strange Trafine had run when Pittman and Walsh had come on him. Where did he think he was going? And anyway, weren't his lungs ruined by dust, giving him just a few years to live? For the benefit of the jury, Parker got Trafine to reenact how he'd been carrying the shotgun over his right shoulder while he'd been running and how he'd stumbled. He also got him to drop the gun a couple of times, and on neither occasion did this discharge the trigger. Trafine had claimed that after being dropped at home by Clark, he'd gone to the Duke of Cornwall Hotel at around 20 past four. Clark had been in the bar and said he'd rung Coulter twice at Matthew's place but had gotten no answer, so he asked Trafine to try. Trafine's claim was that he did ring and got hold of Coulter and said that Clark wanted to see him. Yet there was no record at the telephone exchange of this call having been made at that time. To try to prove the claim, Haynes called an old bruiser named Mally Jackson, who testified that Trafine had been at the Duke of Cornwall Hotel that afternoon at 4.30 and he had gone to the phone. Mally Jackson said he'd come forward after reading the lies that Clark had told at the inquest. This man, who wasn't a ballistic expert, also conveniently knew of cases where one shotgun blast had hit two people. He said it had happened when he'd been living in Tasmania. A girl had fired a shotgun, and one man had died while another had been badly wounded. And he also knew of a case in Sydney. Minor Tom Egan was called to say on the 28th of April he'd seen Coulter at the front of the Palace and Australia Hotels between 11am and midday. They talked about horse racing, so Coulter hadn't been out at any bush gold plant then. Police had been interviewing Kalgoorlie and Boulder residents about whether they'd been approached by Haynes and the defence and offered cash for such testimony. Most said they had not, but at least one said yes. There was also suspicion the defence had relied on unionists and international workers of the world activists who hated the police, and Pittman in particular because he'd testified against them just after the war in the Kalgoorlie riots case. Joseph Bronco Wilson was one such witness under suspicion. On the stand, he said he lived near Coulter. On the 28th, he'd been leaving home to go to work around quarter past three, and he'd seen a car stop in front of Trafine's house. In it were Trafine and Clark. Trafine had gotten out and taken something with him. Quote, It might have been a rabbit or a dead cat or anything. I did not pay much attention. Trafine had no coat on and looked very dirty. Trafini said was one of the fairest men he knew. Clark, though small, was very strong and he'd seen him throw men from his hotel no problem at all. In other words, Trafine would have wanted to do the right thing and Clark would have had no problem dragging around dead bodies, cutting them up and dumping them. Prosecutor Parker asked Wilson if he was a member of the IWW. He said he wasn't. He also denied ever saying he'd never give evidence for the Crown. Haynes called Dr. Sidney O'Neill to give evidence about bullet wounds. And he said yes, a single shotgun blast could kill two men. Just one pellet, he said, could penetrate the jugular vein or carotid artery and cause a man to bleed to death in the way that Trafine said Walsh had. As for cutting up corpses, quote, It was no laborious work, and from the look of Clark, he wouldn't have had any trouble. A Goldfields local named John Rinton testified he'd wanted to arrange a boxing match between one of his sons and one of Trafine's sons. He'd gone to the Duke of Cornwall Hotel about quarter past two on the afternoon of the 28th. Mrs. Clark was in the bar and she said that Phil was out shooting in the bush. Soon afterwards, he'd seen Clark's car pass, it was going fast and it had Trafine on board. The car had gone, stopped at Trafine's house and then come back to the Duke of Cornwall Hotel. Jack Trafine, 23, said around 2 in the morning on the 28th of April, Clark had come to his house and picked up his dad. Just over 12 hours later, as Jack was leaving for work, Clark had dropped off his dad, who'd had a rabbit with him. Though none of these witnesses had testified at the inquest, now they all corroborated Trafine's version of events. William Coulter next took the stand, and he said he used to be a registered bookmaker until five years ago when he'd been convicted of gold theft. Now, he ran a book at the corner of the Australia Hotel. He said you'd find him there every morning and late afternoon until early evening. 
Coulter said that back when Teddy Clark ran the Duke of York Hotel, he'd bought Coulter's old smelting furnace. And at this time, he'd asked Coulter if he'd sell gold that he processed. Coulter said he would take Clark's gold at 15 shillings per ounce under assay value. Coulter told the court he had nothing to do with treating the gold and had never been to the plant. He said he knew Trephine was involved, but he always dealt with Clark. On the 28th of April, Coulter said he'd been staying at the house of his friend William Matthews. That was because his own place had burned down the week before. Coulter said he got up at 7 in the morning and at 10.30 went to see his wife, who was staying with a friend named Lily Davis. Coulter then went to the Australia Hotel from about 10.45. There, he'd seen a man named Maloney, who owed him some money, Coulter admitting that he also earned a quid as a loan shark. Later that afternoon, around 3 o'clock, Maloney had paid him the £20 he owed. Coulter, a stickler for detail, had given him a dated receipt for it. That afternoon, he'd gone back to William Matthews' place. Matthews owned a garage and Coulter had helped him decorate a car for a wedding that night. Around quarter to five, Coulter had gotten a phone call from Trephine at the Duke of Cornwall Hotel asking him to come over. Coulter had, and Trephine and Clark had told him what had happened to Walsh and Pittman. Coulter had said that Trephine was right, they should tell the police immediately. But Clark had said no. Clark had asked Coulter to help him dispose of the bodies. Coulter had refused. It had nothing to do with him. Yet, for the same reason, he promised he wouldn't say anything to anyone. But Coulter had still wanted the gold that had been brought back from the plant, and he paid Clark £100 for it. Then, he told the court, he'd gone to the recreation hotel where he'd had dinner alone. After that, he'd gone back to Matthew's place. Coulter said he'd gone to bed around 8pm. Oh, and he'd also gone out to the Duke of York at around 7 o'clock to get some brandy for a sore tooth. Next morning, he said, he went to get salvage from the burned house and then met his wife and they settled on a new place to live around noon. And over the next day, they'd spent their time moving into that new house. Coulter denied going to the gold plant at any time, saying he'd had no reason to. Similarly, he denied borrowing a pistol from Clark or telling Mrs. Clark after the arrests, quote, keep me out of it and everything will be all right. Of course, Coulter had lied in his statement to police on the 6th of June when he said he'd had no gold dealings with Clark. He'd also lied when he said he hadn't gone to the Duke of Cornwall Hotel early in the evening on the 28th of April, but this had only been because he didn't want to disclose that he'd known about the deaths of the detectives and the subsequent cover-up. But selling a bit of gold and being staunch for a couple of cobbers, that was the extent of his involvement, which was really non-involvement. Parker interrogated Coulter about his financial affairs. This was not only because police suspected he'd been using his wealth to try to bribe witnesses, but also that he'd promised to take care of Trephine's children if Trephine took the fall. After all, Trephine's days were numbered, and he wouldn't swing if he was only found guilty of accidental manslaughter. Coulter claimed to make about £10 a week from gold, and this wasn't enough, he said, to keep house, run a car, and pay for his three kids at boarding school in Perth. So he also loaned money at interest. But Coulter said he wasn't a rich man. He'd lost a lot of money punting. To pay Haynes for his expensive legal services, he'd had to sell a block of land, sell a racehorse, sign over another racehorse to Haynes, and also assign to the barrister his life insurance policies. Asked his opinion of Clark, Coulter testified they had remained friendly in June. But since the inquest, when Clark had given his false testimony, he'd been swept by revulsion for the man. Coulter said he had been out in Clark's car four or five times, and a couple of these times he'd been shooting. Coulter denied that after his first interview with the police, he'd gone to the Kalgoorlie Hotel and said of the cops, quote, I beat the bastards. Coulter also denied he'd promised to look after Trephine's children in return for him admitting sole responsibility for the killings. He further denied that his friend William Matthews had asked him, what do you know about the murders, and that he'd replied, my conscience is clear. This conversation, he said, had not happened because Matthews knew where he'd been at the time the detectives had been killed. Coulter admitted he had been out in Clark's car with Trephine, but that had been in March and they had never been out after dark in the vehicle. So why hadn't Coulter said anything at the inquest? He told the court he hadn't tried to clear himself because he was following Haynes' advice. 
Under cross-examination, Coulter explained the events of the afternoon of the 28th of April. He said when he'd gone to the hotel and learned of the deaths, Trophine had been half crying and it had been Clark who'd done most of the talking. But why, Prosecutor Parker wanted to know, would Clark get himself so mixed up in covering up a tragedy he'd had nothing to do with? Coulter said it was because he'd feared he'd lose his hotel license and that he and Trophine might be charged with murder. Coulter said he'd refused to help dispose of the bodies and had left with the gold money. He hadn't known what Clark had done with the detectives until the bodies had been discovered down the mineshaft and he'd read about it in the paper. Why, Prosecutor Parker wanted to know, hadn't Coulter simply produced that receipt he'd supposedly given to Maloney on the 28th of April when first approached by the police? After all, it proved he'd not been at the gold plant. Coulter said it had slipped his mind. It hadn't occurred to him. Where was the dated promissory note that proved that this loan had been made? Coulter said it had been destroyed when his house burned down. That was all very convenient. Parker read Coulter's police statement about his activities on the 28th of April. What he'd said was just, quote, I was doing my routine business on April 28, seeing how things were. At this point, he hadn't been following Haynes's advice, yet he hadn't told police any of the supposedly corroborative details then about providing the receipt for the repaid loan money, about helping Matthews clean the wedding car, or about getting brandy for his sore tooth. Prosecutor Parker mused, quote, You can now remember all the details. Under further cross-examination, Coulter admitted that he had once been out overnight with Clark in the car, between 7pm and 6am. Parker went on the offensive and said it was yet another of his deliberate lies. Clark said that he'd just forgotten that he'd gone out with Clark and come back early on the morning of the 22nd of April, not a week later on the 29th, and certainly not after disposing of two bodies. Yet, he admitted he had lied about dealing directly with Trophine in the gold-dealing business. But he said he'd only told this fib because he was worried it would connect him further with the man everyone suspected of murder. Taking the stand, William Matthews corroborated Coulter's claimed movements on the 28th and 29th of April. Under cross-examination, Matthews said he'd been Coulter's good friend for many years. Matthews said he had asked Coulter if he knew anything about the murders, which of course was strange if he supposedly knew where his friend had been at the key times. William Matthews hotly denied that the overcoat found in the mineshaft had been his. The Crown's belief was that Coulter had borrowed it, and then dumped it when it was stained with blood. Matthews told the court he hadn't worn an overcoat in 30 years. But the jury had already heard from a witness who said Matthews had worn a coat very much like the one produced in court and that he'd worn it every day until the time of the murders. Patrick Maloney took the stand to say he'd known Coulter for 10 years. He said he'd borrowed £20 from him back in February and he'd settled that debt on the 28th of April, just like the produced receipt said. Charles Williams, an AWU organiser in Boulder and Kalgoorlie, said he'd seen Coulter in front of the Australia Hotel on the morning of the 28th of April. He and his mate George McKenney had both spoken to him. McKenney at that point had been a candidate in an upcoming election and Williams was a postal vote officer. So them associating like this was very sus. Williams only testified with immunity for any breach of the Electoral Act that he'd committed. With this guarantee, Williams admitted to driving McKenney around, and the next morning at about 6.30am, they'd conveniently seen Clark driving a car in the direction of Boulder. Best Williams could tell, Clark had been alone. Williams said he had given evidence for the defence in the IWW riot cases after the war, but he said he had nothing against Pittman for being on the other side in that case, and that he was a friend to all policemen. William said he'd only come forward after the inquest because he'd read what Clark had claimed about being with Trophine on the morning of the 29th of April and he knew it couldn't be true because he'd seen him alone. George McKenney, Justice of the Peace, Boulder Councillor and AWU Secretary corroborated William's evidence and said he'd spoken to Coulter on the morning of the 28th on the street. McKenna said that it was after the inquest that he and Williams had talked and remembered, yes, they'd seen Coulter on that day. Under cross-examination, McKenna said he'd also given evidence for the defence in the riots case and that he'd worked with Coulter for years. No, he said it was not true that he and Williams had schemed to fix the date and get their mate off. 
Margaret Coulter, wife of the accused, also corroborated her husband's movements. Having provided so many upstanding witnesses to alibi William Coulter, and with Phil Trefine having given his own sad account of what had really happened out at the gold plant to Walsh and Pittman, Arthur Haynes now began his closing address. He was vicious, calling Teddy Clark a mongrel, a lying reptile and a blood-sucking vampire, among many other things. Haynes called Detective Manning an interpreter for the N-words, by which he meant the Aboriginal trackers, and said that his evidence of the footprints was basically worthless. Haynes said that Walsh running away and Coulter hunting him down was a stupid story. Haynes said it was absurd also that Pittman had supposedly just stood there and given Trefine a chance to shoot him. The jury had heard what had happened. It had been a tragic accident. Quote, No one can say Trefine's story is not only possible, but feasible. Who in this world can contradict him? Who does actually contradict him except that precious scoundrel Clark? The police had found the remains of two shotgun cartridges, which Trefine had accounted for. He'd shot one rabbit and accidentally shot the police. As for Clark's claim that he'd sat in the car for hours while Coulter disposed of the bodies, Haynes invited half the jury specifically to ridicule that based on their own experience. Quote, Six of you are carpenters. If you were going to say that it would take you two hours to saw through a few bones, well and good. I won't say another thing about that. Haynes said it boiled down to two questions. Was Coulter out in the bush that day? Did Trefine deliberately shoot? Haynes shouted, Would you hang a dog on Clark's evidence? He is the most contemptible thing that ever trod the earth. He alleged that Clark was going to pocket £1,500 in blood money from the reward. Quote, A man who could spend blood money is surely the lowest thing God ever put breath into. There is no direct evidence, not a word of it. Nobody saw what happened. It is all hearsay. Clark only says that somebody told him something. Why did Clark tell this story? Put it to yourselves. Just imagine a man alone, late at night, in his cell, with the shadow of the gallows hanging over him. Wouldn't he naturally be making up all sorts of stories? And after four whole days, he has his story right, or nearly right, and the police were ready to believe it. Judas betrayed his master, the modern Judas, Clark, betrays his servant. I put it to you that the man who cut up the bodies was Clark, and that it's a fitting job for such a human vulture. Were all the defence witnesses lying? Haynes asked. Quote, Are you going to believe 23 witnesses who say, in effect, of Clark, you're a liar, or are you going to believe Clark and never worry about the case again? This story of Trefine's, he swears, did happen, and nobody else was there. You are not entitled to try to reconstruct the crime. Your duty is to judge the case on the evidence. Haynes really pushed things when he said, quote, If the two detectives' heads were as thick as Mr. Parker's, they would be alive today. Haynes gave the jury 20 reasons for believing his client's story and believing that sewer rat Clark was a liar. Haynes was still going when court adjourned, and he resumed the next Monday morning. In all, Haynes spoke for seven and a half hours. Prosecutor Hubert Parker was a contrast, speaking in cool and calm tones when he gave his closing address. He answered every one of Haynes' 20 points. Parker said it was absurd to think that the detectives had been chasing this broken-down old man, Trefine. The handkerchief was Coulter's, the coat fit Matthews. If Clark had been the only one there, how had those items ended up in the shaft? Coulter had spent from the 28th of April to the 10th of June, Parker said, getting people to remember seeing him on the days in question. When he was arrested, he'd said nothing to clear himself. Quote, if he were an innocent man, he could not have kept his tongue quiet. Parker said Clark could not be after the reward money because the proclamation was for the first person to give information, and Clark had been the last, and he'd only done that when backed into a corner. Parker said the case did not rest on Clark's evidence, but on the general evidence. Trefine and Coulter, Parker said, had involved Clark because they needed to close his mouth. Quote, If Coulter's alibi were correct, how was it that Mrs. Coulter and great men friends of his like Matthews did not come along when he was arrested and say to the police, Hold on, you are making a great mistake. This man was never out of town that day. Parker continued of the accused, Quote, 
One of these men is a bookmaker. The other is a champion cycle rider. They are not simple-minded men, yet they say Clark influenced them not to say anything about it. Parker asked, why had Drafine supposedly run? Quote, what was the use of it? Was he going to run to the east or where? The only true statement that Trafine made was that the gun went off, but it didn't go off in the way he says it did. Parker reminded the jury that Trafine had said, quote, You'll never find the bastards. Parker said that the receipt Coulter had supposedly given Maloney was, quote, a clumsy, fictitious piece of false evidence. Parker asked if there was a single defense witness who could be believed. He didn't think so, and neither should the jury. This entire defence, which Haynes said was so conclusive, had not been presented at the inquest. The reasons were simple. Trafine's story was bunk. Quote, Would not an honest, straightforward man who had been the cause of this accident have spoken at once? As for Coulter, the same was true. Quote, Would not the man who was not there have spoken at once? As for all these defence witnesses... Wasn't it amazing that Kalgoorlie had been swarming with detectives for weeks and yet not one person had said they'd seen Coulter on the days in question? Parker said he trusted the jury had already arrived at the conclusion that the defence story was beyond all credibility. There had been two shootings and two killings in two different places. Two men had been there, the two accused, Philip Trefine and William Coulter. They had to be found guilty as charged, guilty of willful murder. Though Parker had not been as fiery as Haynes, he'd spoken for five hours. The arguments had now concluded. It was the 14th of September, one month since the trial had begun. Mercifully, the next morning, the judge summed up briefly. Trefine's defence was, it was an accident. Coulter's was, he hadn't been there. For the purposes of the jury, the judge said Clark was to be treated as an accomplice even though his trial was yet to take place and his evidence should be judged accordingly. It was not safe to convict on his word alone, so they had to assess the corroboration that had been provided by his wife, by the servant girl Hilda Slee and by others, including the police, with their physical evidence. Regarding Coulter's alibi, the judge said the jury was entitled to wonder why it was that so many witnesses remembered his movements so very clearly on the 28th and 29th of April. For instance, William Matthews had said back in June to the police he hadn't known where Coulter was, but in court he'd just given a detailed account. Matthews had also testified he'd asked Coulter if he'd had anything to do with the murder. Why would he have asked this question if he'd known where he was that day? The judge said, quote, You can reasonably ask yourselves when Matthew's evidence came into existence. The judge recounted Trefine's story. He asked why he would have run when the detectives knew him. The jury might believe he'd been running in the hope of hiding the gold, but would they believe he'd run with a gun over his shoulder in the way described? Quote, he told you that when he stumbled, the barrel of the gun was thrown backwards. You try it, gentlemen. If you were running and carrying something on your shoulder and tripped, in what direction would the thing fall? Backwards or frontwards? The judge continued. With the gun slipping off your shoulder and your left hand swinging around to clutch it, which way would the barrel go? Would it go back or would it be pushed sideways? All of that. And it had hit the two detectives in line. The judge pointed out that two areas of earth had been removed 50 feet apart, yet Trefine's story had not indicated Walsh had staggered anywhere near that far. The judge said, It goes off and it kills both of them. Well, gentlemen, that's the story. You have heard the facts and you will consider them from a common sense point of view. But he also said, quote, What probably happened was this, that after Pittman was shot, Walsh ran away, that Coulter chased him to head him off, and that he did head him off. The judge sent the jury to deliberate the verdict at 12.20pm on Wednesday, the 15th of September, 1926. This was now the longest criminal trial the state had ever seen. The 12 men of the jury had spent the last month watching and listening. On one side, Clark and his witnesses, the detectives and prosecutor Hubert Parker. On the other, Trafine and Coulter, their two dozen upstanding Goldfield citizens, and the brilliant, if exhausting, Arthur Haynes. 
Had Walsh and Pittman come on Trophine alone and he'd shot them both deliberately? Or had it been an accident, as he claimed? Had Clark then come and collected Trophine and insisted on silence before carrying out the cover-up by himself? Or had Trophine been at the plant with Coulter? Had Trophine shot Pittman first before Coulter hunted Walsh down and cold-bloodedly killed him? Had Clark helped cover up by giving Trophine an alibi? Had he then accompanied Coulter but not participated in the clean-up? It was all he said, they said. While it had taken a month to outline all of these arguments, the jury came back into the courtroom after four hours. They'd reached a verdict, but it would come with an opinion. And after that, this case would take yet another twist, one that even Arthur Haynes couldn't see coming. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part four of the five-part Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. The final instalment will be with you very soon. A big shout-out to recent Forgotten Australia supporters, Penny Brunton, Jasmine DePola, Margaret, and Sarah Greeley. Your contributions and all supporter contributions are most valuable in helping me access archival material and other research resources. Big thanks also to Simon Shields for the very kind shout-out in, of all places, the Australian Financial Review. I'm glad you enjoy the show, Simon. If you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in the show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.